All right, um, I'd like you to take the opportunity, if you brought your Bible here uh, this afternoon, to turn to the book of 3 John. Now, there's the fourth book of the New Testament called the Gospel of John, but this is different. This is uh, what we call the, an epistle or a letter of John to the churches, and it's 3 John. It's found toward the back of the Bible, so it's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, so toward the back of the Bible. If you're learning the books of the Bible, becoming familiar with them. So, um, Third John, and I want to I want to read the whole book with you, um, which isn't very long because it's the shortest book of the Bible. Shortest book quiz question. Shortest book of the Old Testament is what? Obadiah. Very brief, but uh, Third John is even shorter. So we're going to read the whole whole epistle together, and then what we're going to do is we're going to pick up on our uh, series on a document that goes back all the way to 1563, which is one of the confessional standards of our church called the Heidelberg Catechism. Great teaching tool, very personal teaching tool, and what we're doing um, this afternoon is we are entering into what is the third major section of this catechism, which is on gratitude. So the first section is guilt, and the focus on the second section is grace, and the third one is gratitude. And what that does is it basically spells out to us how do we live thankful lives for being Christians, thankful lives for, to, to, to the Lord, just for giving us grace and giving us the gift of faith to embrace Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We have every reason to give thanks. We're in that section now. And more particularly, we're going to be looking at question and answer 86. That's where we're at. And um, we're going to be taking a look at the role of godliness, holiness, and good works in our lives. Because the fact of the matter is, if we're saved by grace through faith and not on the basis of our works, the question then becomes, well then, what role do good works or good deeds play in our lives? It's a fair question. We're going to address that this afternoon. So, first of all, third John. Join me if you would. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, especially verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, I do not imitate, or beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. 
I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So I'm going to stop reading at that point, and I want to draw your attention now to uh, Q&A 86, all right? So as we normally do, I'm going to read the question, and then uh, let's say the answer together. So here's the question. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? And let's say together. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Okay, so a couple of things. Do keep the Q&A 86 up there if you would. Uh, for those of you who are new here or visiting, what we do is we uh, have what's our called our more teaching service in the afternoon, our catechetical service, and spend a little bit of time going through the, the truths of our catechism together. And then you'll notice that uh, I have a phone number there. That is my personal phone number. And so if you have any questions, you can text them in. Sometimes we don't have any questions. Sometimes we have a few, and we spend maybe just five, seven minutes uh, interacting with the, with the content of what we're dealing with tonight. Now, for now, I, um, I want you to take a look at the question because oftentimes in catechetical services, we focus on the answer. But remember that the questions are, are not only a part of our catechetical training as well as the answers, but um, the questions are equally important uh, in the relationship to the answers. So here's the question. Um, since we have been delivered from our misery, we could say our sin and our misery, by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Now, the operative word there is the word merit. The word merit. So what it's really getting at here is this, and it's, and it's really getting at the heart of the gospel. If, if the good that we do, here's what it's getting at, the Q&A. If, if um, our good deeds and a godly lifestyle, do not actually, listen carefully to this, because the word's, the word's very important, if, if our godliness or our good works do not actually merit or earn anything with God, then why do them? Right? Put it another way, if we are saved by God's grace, is His undeserved love and favor, and if we are saved also through faith in Jesus Christ, faith itself being a gift, and if we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and not actually the so-called good that we do, then why even do any good, right? To put it kind of crassly, um, uh, why not live like hell if we're bound for heaven anyway? We're not saved by our works. So... You know, as the Apostle Paul says, uh, citing a pagan author, let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, and then by grace through faith, we enter into heaven and eventually into the new creation. Why even, why even do any good? 
Okay, that's what we're going to be taking a look at uh, this afternoon. I want to I want to begin with this. And I'll be rather brief with this. I don't know if you have seen this on uh, Instagram, a little video online of um, an Islamic uh, ISIS fighter, and what we call an Islamic uh, militant terrorist. And he was captured, and he was placed in the prison. And when he was in prison, I don't know if it happened at night or during the day, but he felt a, a tap on his shoulder, but he looked around and he didn't see any, any, anyone, but he, but he heard a voice, and the voice said, you are forgiven. And he, of course, you know, if you, if you and I found ourselves in that situation, it would be rather unsettling, to say the least. But when he heard the voice say, you are forgiven, he responded by saying, in effect, he said, um, I have heard that Allah is merciful and he is forgiving, but we never really know if we're going to be the recipients of Allah's mercy and forgiveness until the judgment day. You see, because he's working with the understanding, right, that, that we never really know in the end if religion is either a religion of works or faith and meritorious works, you never really know in the end if you have performed a sufficient quantity and actually quality of good works to merit the mercy and forgiveness of God. This is why every Muslim will tell you that they never have assurance that they're going to receive the mercy and forgiveness of God. You, you hope, okay, that's the word they use, you hope, but you don't know for sure until the final judgment day where your good deeds are weighed. And maybe you're going to be found good, or maybe you're going to be found wanting in the balance. So this is with a response to the voice. And then he followed up that statement that he made to the voice by saying this. He said, um, who are you? And the voice said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, I've never, I have never heard of such a thing. He said, what's your name? And the voice responded, I am Jesus, the son of the living God. The very words that, that Jesus spoke to Peter when he asked, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And this man just kind of broke down and wept. Ah, the mercy and the forgiveness of God. You know, the, 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 the Bible is, is very clear that this mercy and this forgiveness of God is not based upon what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. You get that? I know this is simple, but it gets at the heart of the gospel. Our right standing with God and being recipients of his mercy and forgiveness is not based on what we do or what we have done in this life, but on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross and in fulfilling every demand of the will and the law of God for us. That's our hope. Throughout the ministry, I have worked with so many individuals who did not understand the Christian faith and who are struggling with the Christian faith. And you can, you can tell them exactly what I told you now, over and over and over again. And I have found it doesn't click for weeks and weeks and weeks because you see this idea that somehow what we do in this life 
at least in some ways, merits the mercy and the forgiveness of God to us that is so entrenched that you can talk about grace, you can talk about faith in Jesus, you can talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us. It doesn't sink in. It takes weeks and weeks and weeks. And then finally, by the grace of God, he breaks that. To put it another way, you and I are not saved on the basis of our works, but we are saved on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. The work of obedience to the law of God and his work in sacrificing himself on the cross. That is our hope. And the Bible teaches us that when we, by the grace of God, embrace Jesus Christ in faith and we entrust our lives to him, whereby we come to the end of ourselves and we say, Jesus, I, I have no hope apart from you. When we do that, what God does is he applies the obedience of Jesus and he applies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to take away the guilt and the power and penalty of sin. And he takes that and he gives it to us. The theologians talk about imputing that to us, transferring that to us, so that on the basis of, of Jesus and Jesus alone, we are in right standing with God. Not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us, which becomes our own faith and faith alone all right that's the gospel but again the question becomes okay if we're not saved by our works what role do they play okay we're going to get into that now third john is as i said it's the shortest book of the bible and among other things what the apostle john does is he draws a distinction between two individuals in the church one man is named gaius and the other one is diotrephes did you gather that when we were reading together and um gaius uh, comes across as a mature Christian. We read about him elsewhere in the Bible. And as a mature Christian, he is loving, he is humble, he's hospitable, he's a servant of the church. But the opposite of Gaius is, as we read later on in verse 9, we, there's a man mentioned as Diotrephes. Diotrephes is, is the direct opposite of Gaius. Diotrephes is not loving. He's unloving or loveless. He is not humble. He is proud. He is not hospitable. Rather, he brings division to the church. So what the Apostle John does is he draws a distinction or a contrast between these two individuals. And of course, in the passage, what John does is he commends Gaius and he condemns Diotrephes. Now, as a little bit of an aside, very quickly, it's a reminder to us that, you know, what we, what we find in the early church isn't a very pretty picture. You know, sometimes when you hang around with other Christians, they'll say, oh, you know, if we could only return to the fundamentals and the beauty of the early church, you know, these were people who, Acts 2.42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer and to the breaking of bread together, and they were generous with one another, and they took care of each other's needs, you know. Yeah, I suppose it would be nice, wouldn't it, to have that in every church. But you don't want everything of the early church. There were a lot of problems there too, you know. There was, there was lovelessness, there was pride, there were political factions, there was divisiveness, there was drunkenness, there was sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff, right? But see, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when you, when you see a loving and you see uh, a grounded church and a hospitable church and as we saw this morning, a missional church and all of that, when all these these pieces come together. And that's the way it was with the apostles whom Jesus called on his behalf to, to build the, uh, the church, to build the kingdom of God. And, you know, when the, when the apostles found individuals who were 
actually not only who have entrusted themselves to Christ, but who have, were walking in light of their faith, it brought them great joy and satisfaction, as you can imagine. And John puts it this way in 3 John 4. It's a very simple statement, but it's a beautiful statement. He says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Now pay close attention to that simple language. He, said, he doesn't say, uh, I have no greater joy than to know that my children believe the truth or that my children um, embrace the truth. But I have no greater joy than to, to know and to see actually that my children are actually walking in the truth. Now, that word walk, simple word again, but it's a very important word, and you'll find that New Testament writers use that word quite a bit, the word walk. It's what we call a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew uh, expression of faith, okay? And you say, well, what, what does that walk really refer to? Well, it simply refers to an individual who is united to Jesus Christ by faith, communing with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and who is acting out their faith in the world. One who is actually walking in the faith, who is actually walking with Christ and living that godly life, that life of good deeds, a life of good works as an expression of their, of their faith. And again, the, the apostles took great joy in that. And you know, this, this, this whole idea of, again, the concept of walking, just kind of walking in the faith, keeping in step, as the Bible says elsewhere, keeping in step with the Spirit of God, being led and following the Spirit of God, right? That is, this, this idea of walking is, um, actually you find that in actually the, the three epistles of, of John. Let me, let me demonstrate that for you. I'm going to give you a couple of citations. If you could put um, that first passage there, take a, take a look at this. This is from 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, you can, you can walk in truth, but you can also walk in falsehood. You can walk in light, but you can also walk in darkness, right? Now, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then also this, by this we know that we are in him, that is, united to him and having communion with him. That is Jesus. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Walk, 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 walk. There are, there are three things. If you look at the epistles of John, there are three things that are closely tied together. Truth. The word abide, especially in the first epistle of John, the word abide used all the time. Abide, 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 which points to our union and communion with Christ. So the three things that are closely connected, truth, our union and communion with Jesus Christ, where he abides and remains and lives in us by his spirit, and then also the word walk. So the idea is this, this again is a simple point, but it's one that we need to grasp. The simple point is this, if you know the truth, the truth that is found in Christ and the truth that is found in the Bible, if you know the truth and you embrace the truth, that is a demonstration of the fact that 
that you belong to Jesus and that he lives in you, abides in you by his spirit. And if Christ abides you in you truly by his spirit, what's going to be the natural result? You're going to walk in that truth. You're going to walk as Christ walked. You're going to walk in godliness, deeds, love, all of that. See? Connection. So what, what, what is my simple point here? The simple point here is that when you take a look at the Bible, you will never see a disconnect between, if you're truly living the Christian life, you're never going to see a disconnect between talk, walk, between faith and life, or faith and fruit. The two always go hand in hand. Now, to demonstrate that very clearly, this fundamental truth, you go to the epistle of James. And before, uh, before you put, I'm going to ask you to put James up there in just a moment, guys. But um, when, you, when you take a look at the Bible, what's very interesting is that we, t we see two things happening in the New Testament that God's people in their immaturity were, were a direction in which they were moving. One was called, just bear with me, nomism and antinomianism. And nomism comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. So there was the idea is, yeah, we need to have, and, and the book of Galatians addresses this, yeah, we need to have faith in Christ, but we also need meritorious works. So that in the end, when we come before God, he's going to say, have you believed in my son? We say, yeah, we believed in my son. And then the idea is that, well, then God says, have you been walking with my son? And we have, yes. And God's going to say, good. Because on the merit of not only your faith, but also your works and your good deeds, I grant you my mercy and my forgiveness and my entrance into glory. Nomism. Antinomianism is that what you find among nominal Christians, that is indifferent Christians, where they say, you know what? I understand all you need is faith in Jesus Christ, that we're saved by faith and faith alone. And you know the whole matter of works is not necessary because, or at least we can diminish the import of them in our lives, because after all, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So what you find in the Bible is that nomism tends toward legalism. Antinomianism tends toward libertinism or a loose lifestyle. And the New Testament says you've got to watch out for both of them. A plague on both your houses if you're a gnomist or an antinomian. Okay? So, if Galatians addresses gnomism, what James does is he addresses antinomianism. That somehow there can be a divorce between faith and works. I want to draw your attention to the book of James. Can you put that up there now? He says this. Take a look at that if you would. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, eh, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Oh, now it seems James is saying, well, listen, you know, actually maybe works are so important that they do merit something before God. I mean, really, we need not just faith, we need works. But what is he really saying there? James is addressing the kind of faith that we are to have in Christ. The Bible says that we are saved by faith alone, but, as that great theologian, now who's with the Lord in glory, R.C. Sproul has put it, we're saved by faith alone, but by not a faith that is alone, but a faith that results in the fruit 
of a godly lifestyle. That is all that James is saying. That's all James is saying. Let me, um, I want to I demonstrate something. And a lot of what we're talking about gets at the very essence of the gospel here tonight. The Bible teaches, please, please listen carefully to this. The Bible says that the basis or the foundation of a right relationship with God is a result of God's grace. There's no earning. All that we have in Christ is a gift of God. We are saved by grace. Then the Bible goes on to say that the instrument or the means whereby we take hold of all the benefits that we need in Jesus Christ, the means or the instrument whereby we take hold of Christ is faith. The basis is grace. The instrument whereby we take hold of Christ is faith. And you know what the Bible teaches us? That even the faith that we have, even the faith that you exercise in Christ right now, is a gift of God. Why do I say it's a gift? Because the Bible says naturally, in and of ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead man get up and walk. I've never seen a dead man get up and talk. He can do nothing. And the Bible says we are actually dead in our trespasses and sins. That's why we need God's grace, and that's why we need God to give us the faith that we need in Jesus Christ. It's all of the Lord. You say, what about works? If grace is the basis of our faith and our walk with Christ, and if faith is the means whereby we take hold of Christ, then our works, again, they don't merit anything. They are the fruit of a living faith. It's just the natural result of a living faith. Jesus puts it like this. Um, a good tree naturally produces good fruit. And a bad tree naturally produces bad fruit. So if your faith is real and your love for Christ is real, that's just going to spill over naturally into a life of godliness and good works. just naturally flows. If there's one passage um, in the Bible that is very important in connection with this, and this is, this is a passage, um, I don't know if the if you go to a Christian school, and I don't know if the teachers require you to memorize this, these few verses, but it's worth memorizing, even as adults. It's Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, that goes like this. For you've been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For God has created us in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this gets at the heart of the passage, and the prepositions there are very important. Prepositions, so direction. Here's three prepositions in Ephesians 2. By, through, for. And say, by grace is the foundation of, of our walk with God. We have been saved through faith, faith itself being a gift of God, and we are saved for good works, not because of our works, but for works, our works being the fruit of a living faith in Jesus Christ, which God has prepared even beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. So I want to I say this yet, and then I want to draw to a close. Um, 
one of the reasons why we go through this catechetical service, and one of the reasons why we, we pay pretty close attention to the, to the wording of the catechism, because it really gets, it, what it does is it, it provides a, a beautiful summary of the Bible's teaching. And so if you could put that up there now, put uh, question answer 86, give you a little time to go back to that. And, uh, okay. So look at the question and the answer, and then we're going to close. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, all right, what role should good works play in our lives? Why must we yet do good works? Now look at the answer. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also the one who renews us by his spirit to be his image so that so that with our whole life, and then it mentions three things. We may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Secondly, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors to Jesus Christ. Okay. Why do good works? We're saved by grace through faith. Why lead a godly life? Here are the three reasons. The answer is this. We do good works and lead a godly life for God's sake, for our own sake, and for the world's sake. We do good works, first of all, for God's sake, so that by our godly lifestyle, and not a hypocritical lifestyle, we might say, Lord, <laughs> I'm living for you, not only just because I love you, but because of everything that you had done for me in Jesus Christ. I oftentimes um, think of this uh, verse in my own life because I had the opportunity of growing up in a Christian family and by the grace of God have entered into the ministry. Um, Jesus says, to whom much has been given, much is required. What is required? Godly godliness, consistent life that's lived for Christ. So why do good works for God's sake? Why do good works for our sake? So that by our godliness, we may give demonstration to the Lord and to each other that, you know what, our faith is not bogus, it's not counterfeit, it's real, it's real. You know, no disconnect between faith and life. And then finally this, why lead a godly life, not only for God's sake, not only for our sake, but here's, here's where we get back to the mission that we looked at, the mission of the church um, this morning. We, do, we live a godly life because, you know what, the world is watching. The world is watching. And, and how many times haven't we, and I include myself in this, how many times haven't we, either by our words or by our lifestyle, the world looks at us and goes, oh, yeah, you're Christian. Oh, yeah, you go to that church. But I heard you say this. I saw you do this. And, uh, you know, and then we, what, what do we do? we end up driving them away from, from the gospel and from Jesus. But when we walk, we seek to walk in light of our faith. As we saw with Israel this morning, the world looks at that and he sees something that it doesn't have. Because we don't see a lot of godliness in the world. And some people in the world go, that, that's, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been looking for. So that in the end, by our godliness, our neighbors might be one to Christ. Not driven away through our hypocrisy but driven away by what we attempt as a proper response to the Lord by living a life that is pleasing to Him. So I want to 
just end with this. Here's a question. It's a very simple question. What does your, not your talk, what does your walk reveal about you? Does it reveal a, a genuine faith? Or does it reveal a, a bogus, honestly, a counterfeit faith? Does it reveal a thriving faith or a hypocritical faith? Does it reveal a living faith or what we call kind of a, a, a nominal faith? You know, we're just kind of dragging ourselves along. We're kind of somewhat indifferent to the, the things of God where we're not making the kingdom a priority. Or this, in light of the catechism, here's a question. Um, what do people see in me? We all have to ask that question. What do people see in me? Do they see authenticity? Or do they see fraudulence? Do they see a grumbling spirit or a thankful spirit? And do they see someone who draws others to Jesus Christ? Or do they see someone who actually, through their hypocrisy or their indifference, actually repels people, drives them from Christ? You know, someone once said that, that, you know, in the end, God doesn't want something from us. He essentially wants us. And what the Lord wants from us is a living faith in Christ accompanied by a godly life. And so let's pray to God. And let's ask him to quicken our step to the end that our walk may reflect an authentic faith and a thankful spirit and a winning witness. With that in mind, um, let's uh, come to the Lord. Let's have a brief prayer. We're going to sing a song. And if there are any questions, uh, we can address them then. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray for simply this. Um, we, we pray that as a, as a people, as individuals, but also as a church, we may not be known only uh, for our talk and our orthodoxy, but also for our orthopraxis, our, our practice, our right practice in the faith. Um, Lord, listen, we, we, we all stumble in the best of times, and we, we can, we're here this afternoon, we can probably recall throughout our lives, and maybe even in the past week, uh, just things that we're just kind of ashamed of, and you call us to walk consistently, but Lord, that is, that is just an impossibility. So, Lord, we need your help, and we ask for that help. You've, re as the catechism says, you've redeemed us in Christ, and you've indwelt us by the Spirit, and you're renewing us daily by that Spirit. So, O oh Holy Spirit, we pray, produce even greater fruit in us, greater acts of faith, greater acts of obedience. And we pray this, O oh Lord, so that your name would be praised through us, so that our faith may be authenticated to ourselves and to others and ultimately to you. And O oh Lord, we pray, creating us greater obedience and faith so that through our faith and obedience, like Old Testament Israel, the nations might take notice and be attracted to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord, we pray for all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.